Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Camille, and I'm a real alcoholic. <laughs> By the grace of God, the 12 steps, sponsorship, and AA, I was trying to stand tall, you know. Um, I haven't found a reason or excuse to have a drink of alcohol since May the 2nd of 1972. Now, if you would have known me when I came in, you would say, that's, that's a bloody miracle. You know, it, it really is. There's a man in here and a lady also that saw me when I came in, and they know it's a bloody miracle, too. I want to thank the committee. Um, it's truly been a, a real adventure to uh, come here. I, um, I live in Canada, and I went to Louisville to pick my husband up, and then I came back, and we got lost out in the countryside going to Joe's house. But uh, MapQuest was right, and we were wrong, but anyway. (laughs) But, you know, when you get older, you can't see these little signs that you have. You've got big, big signs, big signs for us older folks. But anyway, there's a little sign. We missed it. But um, we got to Joe's house, and and, uh, I met his lovely wife, Patty, and we automatically started bonding. Because Patty and I have what is called the the language of love of the horse. And uh, she has a Pasifino and showed me her baby. And I just knew that she was the right kind of woman there. And so we, we stayed in their lovely home. And then the other thing that was real nice is that uh, Chris and Carmen had a little shindig for all of us. That's Texas talk if you don't know shindig, you know. <laughs> And uh, so we we went over there and had some vittles and and uh, it was it was real it was good you know uh, and I I just am so happy that Todd you know and the committee got us here uh, because it gives my, me an opportunity to sleep with my husband <laughs> and and I don't know I'm going to tell you see I um my home group now I'm wearing this badge not because I want to be different yes I do I just want to be different. But anyway, I'm a member of the Rocks Glen Traditional AA Group in the uh, Greater Toronto Area. Toronto, Canada, if you don't know where Toronto is. But anyway, so, and we all have badges, and we all have our little names in it. So when we're shaking the newcomers, and we can, they can say, well, hello there, Camille. Or if they have a complaint, they can go up to the head honcho, whoever it is of the group, say, well, Camille didn't shake my hand or give me a hug or whatever Camille was supposed to do, and they can complain and rat on us. And so that's why we got our badges. Good home group members wear them. Bad home group members throw them away. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's the deal. But uh, the uh, Roxland Traditional Group meets every uh, Monday and uh, Thursday night. So if you're ever in uh, Toronto and you want to go to a very good home group, uh, please come and join us. It starts at um, 7 o'clock. 7 to 8 is social hour. 8 to 8. 9.30 is the uh, meeting. 9.30 to 10.30 is when we eat. Now, this is the only meeting I know that feeds fe- people afterwards. I mean, we have little those little sandwiches, you know, with uh, cucumbers on them. It's just real interesting. But anyway, <laughs> it's high class. When I came in here, they just had some old stale donuts that they would get from Goodwill or somewhere and give it to us. And I, I was happy with that. And so, but uh, I, I do want to share with you this afternoon my my adventure into a spiritual journey. I um, I happened to start drinking before I was born, and uh, that's because my mother was a real alcoholic, and so she was drinking, and and I not only drank but I uh, would smoke and have sex vicariously, and I got to go to jail and. I got to do a lot of interesting things. Mom was a bar fighter, and so I would get to fight, too, and I would probably in there saying, Get them, Mom, get them. Don't let them get you. And so I don't know. But after, uh, it was a shock. I sobered up when I was born. That's a terrible thing, you know. You don't have a choice, you know. And uh, so anyway, I... I um, stayed with a lady for about um, five months in the state of Montana. They decided enough is enough uh, when they had got a call at the police department there in Butte, Montana. And they said, you know, there's been a, a baby crying for three days, and we don't know what's wrong. 
Well, they went and, and found out my mother was passed out, and I had been crying there for three days. I had major resentment. And, <laughs> and so they took me away, and, and they told her, they said, you know, we're, we're going to help you out. I was amazed what they did. They said, why don't you go to uh, Warm Springs, that's where the state mental institution was, and get treatment for alcoholism. And she looked at him, and she said, well, I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I just have a little drink here and there. And and uh, thank God um, Montana does not do what they do today, keep giving the babies back and giving them back and b- giving them back. That's my own personal opinion. Uh, they said, you know, we're going to give you um, a month. And if you stay sober for that month, we'll give you the baby back. Well, she's not an alcoholic, so she happened to get drunk, go to jail in three times in that month. So she made a wise decision. She said, you know... I uh, really um, don't need a child, and so I'm going to give that baby up. And thank God she did. That was the best thing she could have done because she had to go do what she had to do. But uh, within that first year of my life, it's it's, uh, some things that I've found out since, that that is a very special time where a baby develops trust. And, and, you know, you you trust the ones you love. And if, if they're not that trustable, then you sort of grow up that I don't trust you, and that's sort of the way I came in. Uh, to the world is that I don't trust you. Uh, you leave me, and you're not good to me. Well, I was adopted by two wonderful people at the age of one that had absolutely no idea. And and uh, they should really give these little guides to how screwed up the babies are that they're getting, but they don't. They just give them the babies, and they just, you know, never thought nothing was wrong. And so... Going with that, if you look at the nurture nature, okay, you have the genes of the alcoholic, but you also have the love of two people that there's nothing wrong with you. And that's the way they treated me. There wasn't anything wrong with me. I was perfect in their eyes and in my eyes. And I got to do a lot of good, fun things. I got to grow up in a a 10,000-acre cattle ranch in Montana when I was four years old. And... I got to have the freedom to uh, roam. I had a Labrador dog, and they were out working the farm, and the dog and I, we were into all sorts of things. Now, one of the things I know that I'm a real alcoholic, I'm a child of chaos, because I love to go through the chicken house (laughs) with the dog and scream, and and there's feathers flying, and chickens are dropping over dead. and I mean, I loved it. I loved it. The dog loved it. We started out with 300 laying hens. By the time we were done, it was about down to 50. <laughs> because, you know, chickens can't take all that chaos. I would get a little pat on the popo. The dog would get his ears rung, and, man, we were back doing it again. Alcoholic. That's an alcoholic tendency. Well, then the other thing that I liked was control. And I learned about control at four years old. I learned that if you went into the bullpen, the Brahma bullpen by yourself, there would be nobody that would come and get you. <laughs> They'd say, come here, oh, come here. I said, come get me. <laughs> and, you know, come on, you want it, you know. And, and so I got to learn things. I mean, I'm four years old and I'm learning these vital skills, vital skills that are going to carry me on through the rest of my life, you know. <laughs> and so... Anyway, then we moved off the farm and and went into the town, and and that just destroyed my life because it took away my freedom. And I really hated living in the city. Didn't have my dog, didn't have my horses, didn't have, you know, I used to go moose hunting with my cap gun and couldn't do that no more. And so it was really a sad state of affairs. And I went to school, and, and because of my, I have what is called fetal alcohol effect, not fetal alcohol syndrome, but that gives me great learning disabilities. And years ago, they didn't know that. They, didn't, they just knew that I couldn't read very well. And, and if Camille was tired in the first and second grade and put my little head down, they would say, well, she's just tired, and then just let me. Well, I didn't learn too much doing that, you know. And, and uh, um, as a result, when you're going to school, uh, kids that don't excel in school, you're looked down upon. The other thing that got me, when you were talking about these glasses, you know, all these old glasses, and then they would call you four eyes. And that would really 
it, I mean, it would just get me. How could you do that to me? Well, I felt so inferior and, and couldn't think and, and just didn't want to be there. Well, the thing that saved me is I got into my first addiction, and that was with the love of the horse. And I truly believe that if I wouldn't have found the love of the horse, I probably would have started drinking way before I was 19. But that carried me. It carried me through the years in, in grade school and the years in high school that I hated. I never felt that I fit in. Well, I didn't because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do with boys. The only reason a boy was any good to me was he could brush my horse and clean my barn. Um, I never went to proms. I didn't go on dates. My first boyfriend that I loved for a long time turned out to be a gay fellow. And I asked my mother, I said, did you know he was, he was gay? And she said, well, you got to travel the country with him, didn't you? And I said, yeah. She said, well, you're not going with anybody that isn't. <laughs> so I said, all righty, all righty. So I, I traveled and I showed and I won. And it's like Frank Sinatra said, you know, at the end of the song, is this all there is? When I was a star, and I mean I was on the TV and had my name in the paper and all blah, 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 blah. And I thought I was Miss It. You know, they interviewed me at 16. They said, what are you going to be for the rest of your life? Well, at 16, I had a vision. I knew exactly what I was going to be. I was going to be a world-famous horse show trainer. That's what I was going to be. Well, it just, all of a sudden, the stuff that was inside me, it just didn't fit. It didn't work. There was something wrong. You know, it was like everybody was doing the two-step, and I didn't even know the first step. And I was always out of sync. And I sure didn't know what to do with boys. And I sure didn't know what to do with my feelings. And I didn't know what to do with a lot of things. And so I quit high school to show horses, so I went out and got a GED. That was pretty good for somebody that could hardly read. Um, But I thought I was stupid. And so then I went on to high school, or went on to uh, college, and I was going to be a nurse. Well, over in Haver, Montana, there's two things in Haver. There's a college, and there's cowboys, and there's Indians. And I loved them. I loved the cowboys and Indians. But I learned how to drink in the Air Force. And the reason I say I learned how to drink in the Air Force is because there's also an Air Force base there. And so I discovered the thing that made it okay. I discovered my solution. My solution in life, because when I drank, it truly did make it okay. It gave me the feeling, the illusion, the delusion that no matter what was wrong with me on the inside, is that I could look like you on the outside. I could talk. I could dance. I could do things that men and women do that I had no experience of, but I had seen horses do it, so I figured if the horse could do it, we could figure it out. And so that was the thing about it is, is I learned a lot about life from animals. And, and I never did it with animals. I just wanted to clear it up. <laughs> I know this is not tape, but I don't want people to say, well, shoot. Oh, no, no. I know some people that have. But anyway, that's in, the, <laughs> that's in their fifth step, you know. And, and I said, you know, God forgives you too. So anyway, um, I... Uh, I went on and, and uh, left Haver, and, and um, boy, I loved the boys and the booze. I mean, it was, and we run with that for about four years, and I drank every bit I could because, see, I wasn't, I, it was like, you know, coming home, it's like going back on the nipple again. You know, you recognize it. You know, you've drank it before, and it's good. It's good stuff. And, and I liked all those fluffy drinks and everything until I found out that put weight on you. Then I went to scotch and water. And and I could drink about a fifth of scotch and keep on stepping because I wasn't a puker. I was not a person that would get a hangover, and I never got sick. And I thought, isn't this wonderful? And I could drink. You know, I drink all the boys under the table. And I have lots and lots of stories about that. But the thing about it is is that if I didn't have that stuff inside... It was just like standing at the blackboard and taking your fingernails and going right down it. And that's how I felt on the inside. And and it was it was just god awful. Well, I used to love to drink and drive. <laughs> I did. I never owned a car during this time, but I loved to drink and drive and get in somebody else's car. 
I always figured if I was in my own car, it was like driving your own horse, you'd never have a problem. So when I got picked up by the cops, I was always blamed that it was their car. It was because I was in their car that I had this problem. And, and I was talking to somebody about a month ago, and, and um, I had a upper respiratory infection, and they said, you know, you ought to take a little whiskey with that, and it would make you feel better. And I said, you know, I tried that in Portland, Oregon for about, oh, six months. Never got rid of the cold, but sure had a hell of a good time, <laughs> you know, and stuff. And then I was talking to another person about uh, driving in a blinding snowstorm. I said, yeah, I went from Portland over to Bend one time over the mountain, and we found out when we got over there, the road was closed. <laughs> she said, well, who was driving? I said, I was. <laughs> That's the kind of driver I was. I like to live on the edge. You know, it's, it's, it's fun. I used to live in Seattle. And I always knew, after going out to West Seattle to the jazz clubs by myself, I always wanted to run by myself because then I could decide if I was going to stay at home or we're going to do it or whatever we're going to do. But anyway, I always knew when I got on that floating bridge, I always knew I was going home. I was going home to Bellevue. Well, if you've ever been to Seattle, I mean, this it's up and down and curvy, and it's worse than Kentucky is what it is. And it's just terrible roads out there. But anyway... So I, I, I moved around a lot. I, I lived, uh, left Montana, I lived in Seattle, I lived in Portland, I got into the ski business, and I left the horses, and I run with uh, a lot of skiers, and I learned how to ski because that's what you need to do if you're going to go be part of the deal. I went to Vail, Colorado, and it was like I had landed in heaven. And that's where I uh, ended up hitting my bottom, was in a multi-million dollar ski resort. And uh, I went there with $25 in my pocket. And don't tell me you can't fake it until you can make it. Because I did a lot of faking, you know. I was running with the multimillionaires, and you give me a little whiskey, and I can tell you anything. I mean, I was sitting there with the senators and the people, and we were discussing world problems. You know, I didn't do very good in history even, so how would I know? But I always had my two cents. I crashed a party one time with Jerry and Betty. Uh, that's our ex-president, and I, I told him one time, I said, you know, I crashed a party of yours, and he said, well, did you have a good time? And I said, yeah, somebody handed me a drink, and I, I stayed two hours, you know? And so that's the kind of person I was. I, I, I was never afraid. I was never afraid to talk to you. I was never afraid to be with you. I, I skied with some of the best skiers in the world, and uh, I was able to do all the wonderful things that I needed to do so I could get here. I mean, I don't regret that I am an alcoholic because it gave me a life that I don't regret. I mean, I needed everything that I did in order to be able to get here so I could help you. And so when the deal came down to the end, I wasn't happy. I don't know if anybody is. You know, but God made it so tough on me, it's like you better wake up and smell the roses. I could still drink. I could still do a lot of things. But he put me into a situation through a judge after a second DUI in a month. And the judge said, I think you have a drinking problem. And I said, no, I have a problem with you. And I have a problem with the judge or the cops. And I have a problem with, you know, I was stopping at the the um, green lights and going at the red at 3 o'clock in the morning in Denver. When the cops stopped me, I got out and kissed them. And I said, thank God you stopped me. I said, I didn't know what color to stop at. You know, <laughs> so anyway, um, they sent me to A&A, and I was not a happy girl, because they put me on antabuse. They used to do that four years ago, and they put me on antabuse, and, and um, I found out you can do a lot of things, smoke that non-habit forping foreman or puffing, you know, like our ex-president used to do. He never smoked it. He just puffed it. And so anyway, I did that and went to AA. And, and the thing about it is that you got the hook into me. And the hook is hope. It's just like what it says there on that little pamphlet there. Hope. There was hope here. And see, without a drink, I was didn't have any hope. I didn't even know what to do without a drink. What are you going to do? There's my babies. They drove down from Columbus. Yeah. 
So, anyway, I haven't got to the good part yet. I'm just getting that in. I'm just sobering up now, girls, so you know about that. <laughs> anyway, so I, um, but I went to AA, and you know, thank God they were solution-focused. Because I need a new solution. See, alcohol was not only my uh, problem, it was my solution. It made, it made it okay. It made life okay. I needed a new solution. And, and these people, now it's hard to go to a meeting in Vail. There's only five guys and me. And they would read out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I couldn't read too well, so they would read to me. And I didn't want to be there. And, and it was just, uh, but they just kept coming back. And you know those guys? They're still around. Talked to one of them the other day, Robbie. I talked to him, and, and uh, he he's having a tough time breathing because he has emphysema. But he, he just says, isn't it a miracle? Isn't it a miracle that we're still alive, still sober? And so I uh, decided I needed to get out of Vail, and I moved down to Denver. But before that, I'd gone to what this is Gary's favorite word. He went to a jitter joint. Well, I went to a jitter joint too, and it was called Fort Logan. And and out at Fort Logan, they had a program for Skid Row alcoholics. Now, when the guys in Vail, if they would have been thinking, they could have sent me to Hazleton, you know, because that was nicer than Fort Logan. But they never offered me. They never offered me the deal. But I was walking the streets wanting to die, so they knew they needed to do something. So they got me into Fort Logan, and this was for for Skid Row alcoholics. Well, if you're 23 and you're with people that are 50 and they've done all those, I mean, <laughs> they've been to prison and some of them, of them have been hookers and some of them have been drug dealers. And then we had one guy that was an Olympic skier and I thought that was neat. Um, another guy had been a senator and I thought, well, that's not bad. He hadn't been one for years, but he had he'd been there one time. And, and living on the skids. Well, anyway, I was the, the star brat of the, the institution. Had my little uh, romance. You know, you always got to find some sickle in the institution, have a little romance out there in the middle of the, the parade ground so you can, can uh, talk about something in group. <laughs> so, anyway... Oh, it was terrible. So anyway, so I figured what I needed to do was move out of Vail. And so I moved out of Vail with two suitcases, and, and I was hitchhiking. And, and I met this guy by the name of Big Frank, you know. And, and so I'm hitchhiking out of Vail with my two suitcases, and who should pick me up but Big Frank? Well, it could have been Bundy, because Bundy was picking up girls, too. Out of there. Well, you know, you know who Bundy is. Well, anyway, otherwise you would have had another speaker. It wouldn't have been me. <laughs> but I don't know. I had to listen to Frank all the way down the mountain. It was just horrible. He said, come here. All you have is one problem. One problem. I said, what's that? Alcohol. Oh, God, Frank. No, I got money problems. I have living problems. I have this problem. No, no, no. And, and it was just terrible. And and we would debate, we would back and forth, back and forth. And and so when I got down there to Denver, I didn't know anybody except these recovered alcoholics. Well, as much as I didn't like them, I still loved them. So I'd go up and debate with them. And I'd go up to York Street and we'd debate about the the uh, um, values of alcoholism. And, and why are you an alcoholic? And why aren't you an alcoholic? And what makes a real alcoholic? And they said, well, why don't you just go out and do the 90 and 90, that Marty Mann's test, where you go out and drink two drinks, no more, no less. And then if you're a real alcoholic, you won't make it. But if you, you know, you know the deal. Well, anyway, so I was sitting at York Street, and I said, fine, I'm going to go do that. So there was a bar, the New Yorker, two blocks down, trot right down there, and a set up there, and I had a drink. And I waited. And I thought to myself, you know, one drink's never been enough. So I had another one. And then I had another one. Then I went back to York Street and I said, hey, I've changed this test, guys. It's three drinks, not two. And they said, you failed. You failed. And Frank looked at me and he said, you know, kid, he said, as stubborn as you are, he said, you could do that 90-day test. He said, you could do the 60-day test. Because when you only drink for four years, and I'm 23, 
He said, you probably have a little bit of control. And it talks about young people in there. But he said, it's that peculiar mental twist. And the peculiar mental twist in me is that alcohol worked when it's working. It worked. It worked just fine. It doesn't work for my husband, Bob. Now, that's the biggest waste of alcohol for anybody. You ought to watch an Al-Anon drink. Hi, yeah, 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 you know. They don't get the kick out of it. They don't get any thrill. It's sort of, just blah. Then he'll tell me, after a couple drinks, he'll say, I'm tired. I said, how can you be tired for the Lord's sake? It's time to go party, pal. You know, two drinks and boy, I'm, I'm frisky as a fiddle. And so anyway, the great debate finally had to come to an end. And and I went to Young People's, and thank God there was Young People's. And I went in there, and I sat down. Gary might have been there and, and uh, raised my hand and said, Well, I might be an alcoholic. I might not be. And you know what they said to me? Just sit down and shut up. Pull, you know, pull a carton out of your ears and plug it in your mouth and, and listen to see what we have to say. Nobody patted me on the popo and said, Oh, we're so glad that you're here. Nobody said, Well, I spilled more than you've drank, and all those cute little sayings that you would say to these young people that come in. They just said, they weren't very nice to me, is what happened. And I was scared of them. I mean, I was terrified of them, because these were a group of people that normally would not mix. They really were. And and I'd heard they had taken some poor poor guy out in City Park that wouldn't sober up, and, and they beat the crap out of them. <laughs> and they really did, and I thought, my God, what kind of a group am I getting into? You know, but they were caring and they were loving. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, I decided after um, I met this wonderful gentleman who had blue eyes, he had blonde hair, had a big diamond ring, he smelled good, he looked good, he was a veterinarian and drove a Cadillac. And he said, would you like to go to coffee with me? And I said, absolutely, I'd go to coffee anywhere you want to go. Anywhere you want to go. And thank God he had some principles, you know. And and I talked his ear off. I told him how my sad tale, and he would listen to it, and he would listen to it. And we went to meetings all the time, and I thought, this is good. He's coming, pick me up, you know. And then finally, he called me up, and he said, I have an emergency at the vet hospital. A cat has to have a hysterectomy. I had an emergency histo on a cat. Gosh, I've never heard of that. Anyway, he didn't show up. And I waited with my big book in hand because I, you know, I was going there for all the wrong reasons, but it was it was fine with me. Big book in hand, he didn't show up. And I said, hey, I'm going to have one of those slips that they talk about. And I walked with my big book right downtown to the Piccadilly Lounge. I checked out the boys at the bar. Because when you don't have any money, you got to check out look somebody that looks affluent. Because if you're going to go drinking for the night, you've got to have somebody. So anyway, so I picked up this guy that was a dentist from Laguna Beach, California. We went out, and we whined, and we dined, and I couldn't get drunk. And I thought, isn't this terrible? I can't get drunk. I want to get drunk. I'm just as sober as the judge at the end of the night. And he said, can I come to your place? And I said, that's not part of this deal. Are you crazy? Lucky he he was a gentleman. Well, anyway, the next day I called Whitey up and I said, you know, I got drunk last night. And he said, that's fine. He said, I'll come and we'll go have coffee. And I said, great, great, he's going to come and save me. Went downtown to the uh, big boy. He sat me down. He said, you know what? He said, you're not ready for this deal. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, you're just playing games here. He said, I'm going to go out and buy you a case of whiskey. I said, what? Here's a good upstanding AA member offering a newcomer, me, a case of whiskey. I said, well, I wonder what New York or I wonder what York Street, I wonder what people would think about that, old comers offering newcomers whiskey. But you know what that did to me? It released me because I found out it was my deal. If I wanted to sober up, they were going to help me. If I didn't want to sober up, go, go out there. Do whatever you need to do. And he said, but... Why don't you make a commitment? And for all the people in here that don't know about the chicken and the pig story, I'm not going to bore you with those details, but I will tell you about that story in private. But the deal about the chicken and the pig. 
is, is that what they wanted me to do is not make a decision. It wasn't a 24-hour deal. It's make a commitment. Make a commitment to do this deal. And, and so I said, what's the deal? I mean, be, I mean, here you are dying, but you've got to negotiate this deal. Well, get a home group, get a sponsor who is female. I hated that. Gosh, I want uh, read the big book, work the steps, pick up ashtrays, wash coffee cups, whatever they say do, unless it's run butt naked down York Street, uh, you do. If it isn't in the big book, they said you don't have to do it. And so I said, okay, that sounded good. And so I started going to AA. And and uh, for the next three years, it was truly, truly an adventure. Because I'm the tr- kind of drunk that I was either suicidal, homicidal, you talk about fear, I was enraged. Okay, I was not one of these sweet, young, warm, cuddly things, oh, and cry and carry. There's a woman by the name of Marcy, and she would cry all the time. I thought, what's the matter with you? Just buck up, kid. You know, just just get a life, you know, and, and stuff, and, and stuff. And, and I, I, the only time that I had any kind of peace of mind was when I was in an AA meeting. And the rest of the time, it was just all this, all this chaos going on. Um, I, I did get a sponsor, and, and you were forced to work the steps whether you wanted to or not. But, but I did work the steps. My first uh, inventory was sex inventory, which we're not going to share from the podium. Um, because the thing about it is that that was the thing that I felt so bad about. Because when you're a single woman alcoholic out there, you do whatever you need to do to get a drink. And so, it, consequently, you break every moral law and value that you, you do, and you feel terrible about it. And stuff, and you don't want anybody to know. And plus, you have to use people and all that stuff that goes along with that nonsense. And so I felt terrible about it. And so I got free of that. Then I went on, and they said, go home and get the book off the shelf. And I put it up there so I could pull it down and get it off and read it, you know, and all that jazz. And, and I walked out of there doing the seventh step and thought that I was St. Camille coming home. Coming home, and I was real happy about that because I thought, boy, all my character defects are all gone. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And um, I found out later that's not true. Uh, but the the deal is that I started making amends. And I did make amends um, by going and saying to my sponsor, what amends should we do? And I made some amends that I had to go back and make amends for the amends. I mean, some of them were just pitiful. And I'm not going to talk about them from the podium either. And because some of them were sort of dicey, you know, the deal like, what can I do to make it right? Well, some people had some real interesting ideas of what I could do to make it right. And I'm so stupid, I said, oh, well, whatever it takes. You know, so I um, I joined the group. And, and the thing about it, I had a hard time identifying. Because what we get a tendency to do is we get talking about all the stuff out there. The car wrecks, the lost kids, the lost wives, the lost parents, all this stuff out there. I hadn't done a lot, you know. I really hadn't. But the feelings, the feelings inside of never being enough, no matter what I do. And talking about those feelings... I was down in Cedar Glen, Texas. The first woman that I ever heard was Shirley Gorey. And she talked about feelings. And see, I had frozen feelings when I came in here. I locked them up. So I did, and I mean, I started crying like a baby. I thought, oh my God, Frank was down there. You guys might have been down there, Gary and Julian and stuff. And, and, um, it was just amazing. I thought, well, maybe I am one. Because, you know, you say, are you an alcoholic? Oh, yeah, I could have told you I was a chair. I wanted to be part of this deal. Did I know what an alcoholic was? I didn't have a clue what an alcoholic was. But I wanted to be part of this deal. And so I kept coming and uh, worked the steps that way. Now, it says half measures avail. I did the best I could. I wasn't half measuring it, but I did the best I could. And and so then I got into service and I became the GSR. Now, when you become the GSR, all of a sudden you know truth and you're running the group. And you're the president of AA. And you'd let everybody know. And if they don't do it, you snap. Come on. Let's go. And and we went to a lot of conferences and it was a fellowship. I remember we were, they, they never asked me why I wanted to go anywhere. They said, we're going to um, uh, Glenwood Springs. There's a service conference up there. And, 
and uh, have your bag packed, you're going with us. Well, I was a month sober. I said, sure, that's fine with me. I went up there and uh, ended up staying on the floor of, of uh, Joyce Prince's room. Because, you know, I don't know where Don was, but anyway, I was sleeping on the floor. He must have been there somewhere, but anyway. Um, the thing I remember about that is that I found out that you can dance sober. It's amazing. Because if you've never danced sober, I didn't know those parts could move when you're sober. When you're, when you're drunk, the parts just fly around, you know. But when you're sober, that's what I learned from that conference. And, and I learned that alcoholics could have fun. That was very important. At 23 years old, it was very important for me to find out that my life wasn't over. And I never knew what adventure I was getting into. But anyway, it wasn't over. And so after about three years, and I had a good run in AA, and, and uh, I was still up and down like a yo-yo, still um, had a number of sponsors. Uh, Sharon d- decided that she would go out and go to Las Vegas, and so she left. And so I got another woman by the name of Jerry Hart. Jerry was a motorcycle rider, and I rode mo- motorcycles. And uh, I had dated her husband previously, who was just crazy as a loon. Uh, in fact, I dated every, if you were real sick in AA, I dated you. I, 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 you know, and my sponsor says two sickies don't make a welly. And I kept trying to find somebody to, you know, get well. But I really, I really did, you know. And, and you know the thing about it is that those guys, nobody knows either either dead, drunk, or nobody knows where they are. Because all the guys that had some sense, they were my friends, but they sure wouldn't go out with me. And I, they told me that, too. They said, man, we're not going out with you, kid. But anyway, um, uh, I, um, Jerry told me one time, she said, you know, Camille, you can do anything you want to do in life. I said, really? Because I was, this is the part on the second half of the first step. You can do anything. And I, I said, what do you mean? She said, you can sleep with married men. You can steal. You can lie. And I said, really? She's my sponsor, and she's saying I can do this. I said, really? She said, yeah, if you're willing to pick up the tab. And I said, what do you mean, what what tab? She said, there's a tab. There's a consequence. If you're willing to be the boss of your life, then be willing to pick up the tab. I said, I don't like the tab. She said, well, then don't do it. I mean, she would have those little sayings like that, you know, back you into stuff where where you didn't know you were going. (laughs) So... So anyway, then I, Jerry, I don't know, she went somewhere and, and um, uh, I, I used to like to play motorcycle. I, I had my own bike and I had my leather pants and I would go strutting through the club. You know, I was hip, slick and cool and scare half the little fillies that were there and they didn't know what was going on. Oh, it was pitiful, but I had a lot of fun. And, and um, I, I uh, um, got a new sponsor by the name of Barbara. And, and Barbara was an older lady that had some high moral values. Well, at that time, I still hadn't come quite, quite into my own, and I still had the lust of the lower nature sometime. And, and, and I, you know, I'd fall in love with you, and I'd take you on home and help you and all this good stuff. And, and um, she didn't care for the gentleman because I finally got sick of AA men. I thought, you know, if you're an AA, you're a loser. I'm going out there to the happy hunting ground of all those men out there. Well, what am I finding out there, sick ones? But I didn't know that. Well, anyway, I found this old boy, and I told Barb about it. She said, you're never going to stay sober if you go out with him. Now, don't tell me. I'm an alcoholic. Don't tell me I'm not going to do that. I stayed with this idiot for nine years. For nine years to prove that you could stay with a pure idiot. I mean, he was... It was just pitiful. But I stayed with him by George. Stand by your man and all that good stuff. Um, so, anyway, when uh, I got deal, done with that deal, I got on my knees and I said to God, I said, you, if you want me to be a nun for the rest of my life, no sex, no men, by God, I'm willing. I'm real, willing, you know. And, and I was about 12 years sober, so I got to have a lot of fun in between, you know. So I wasn't worried about that. I wasn't going to get anything, you know, anyway. Um, so, so, but uh, in between that time, I had, I had fired Barbara because she had told me I wasn't going to stay sober. So I got 
uh, they were hiring bus drivers down at the uh, city bus hall. Well, I had a problem. I mean, I tried to drive cab, and the only time I made money driving a cab was during the International in Denver. And those alcoholics that would come in and I'd pick them up at Stapleton and take them downtown, I'd tell them I'm an alcoholic. I mean, they got loose with their money. It was great. Don't ever say alcoholics are cheap. I mean, I made money during that deal, and then after they left town, I went broke. And and what happened is that what happened to the Denver young people is that I never do that until years later. Well, these guys had found a guy by the name of Max Cheater, and they all went off and started their big book study group. You know, and us women, I don't know what we did. Well, I know what I did. I figured I'd work the steps. I'd been the head GSR. I'd done all this stuff. Now what I need is a good man and a good job, and so I'm going to be the bus driver. I hated bus driving. I When I was a little girl, I never wanted to be like Ralph Crandon. <laughs> Move him on back, please. And I never wanted to do that. But I loved the money. I mean, I was making good money, but I went crazy, you know. But I had a, I had a sponsor at that time, and, and I needed to learn some other things, too. And, and she helped me in a lot of ways. Because when you get young people in there that have no social skills, no, no living skills, you gotta not only teach them how to get sober, you gotta teach them how to dress. She said, no F word anymore out of your mouth, please. And I learned how to cuss. Boy, you get on the bus, I could do it in Spanish, I could do it in English, I could, I could do it in Portuguese. I knew all the little cuss words. I thought I was hip, slick, and cool. She said, that's not acceptable. Uh, she said, I want you to dress like a lady. I said, I don't like women. She said, I'm not asking them to sleep with them. I just want you to act like one. And and so I said, okay. And, and uh, she said, now, do you like bus driving? I said, I hate bus driving. She said, well, then go to college. I said, I don't like that either. And I found out one thing is that, you know, when you get in these situations, either or, you know, and it happens with a sponsor, you might as well pick the one you want to go because you're going to do something. And so I ended up going to college and learning how to read and study, and I didn't know how to do that, and I finally learned how to do, do that. And in 84, I graduated from the University of Colorado with a, a B.A. in business. And, and now, when you're living sort of outside AA, um, and out, sort of outside, I was sort of inside, your life gets stressful. And my life started, my body started breaking down. You can't live that way and think that you're going to get your way clean and pretty soon I ruptured the disc. I couldn't even walk. Well, it was during that time, and that was in 1984, and I'd got on the knees being the nun, so I was being the nun. I was trying to be good and, and stuff, and then I run into Don P., Don Pritz in the post office, and he said, let's go have coffee. Well, this was the time that Don was um, the delegate. And what Don did with me is that he 12-stepped me back into this program. Because Don saw in my eyes that there was nobody home. So he uh, said, let's go have coffee. And he started telling me about the adventures of him going to Russia and about being a delegate. And then all of a sudden he said, um, by the way, why don't we start a, or why don't we go through the steps? And so I went through the steps with him one-on-one -on -one and came to the conclusion that once I take a drink, I'm going to take another. And if I don't have a spiritual experience, I'm going to drink or go crazy. I was already crazy, so I saw that. My life is unmanageable. I couldn't manage personal relations. I was prey to misery and depression. Couldn't earn a living. All that stuff on page 52. You know, I, I was passive-aggressive. I was either kissing you or I was kicking you in the ass. You know, managing. I couldn't manage my life. And I went through the steps again. And I got free. I got free. And I got clear. So after he'd taken me through the work, he said, well, let's start a big book study. So I had a little condo, and I said, okay. And that's where I ran into Joe and Mark. They were just fresh pups, and, and didn't, they were wet behind the ears, just goofy as a loon. And so we got over there. I started sponsoring some women. We started a big book study and went through the book. And uh, it was right during that time that I um, went to the International in Montreal. And my old friend, Ann, 
uh, he, he's enough to drive you crazy. But you got to go to the international. you got to go. you got to go. I don't want to go. I want to do something else. Well, anyway, I, I ended up going to the international. And, and uh, because I'm running short of time, I'm going to let my husband tell, tell that story about us meeting, going to the international. But I met my husband on a plane. And we had a long-distance relationship, and we're still married. And it's by the grace of God, and it's the most amazing thing. We met 20 years ago at Montreal. And uh, we've had quite an interesting experience. But, you know, if he would have met me one day sooner, I probably would have killed him. Because, <laughs> I mean, I'm not the most warm, fuzzy alcoholic in the world. But, anyway, um I, I ended up in Denver. They fired me from the bus company, if you can imagine that. I wasn't the best employee because I was the kind of employee that, that if you were drunk, and I loved the 12-step, in Denver they used to call it trolling for drunks. I didn't have to troll for drunks. They were on my bus all the time. And, and so I figured, what else am I doing? I might as well 12-step them. So I was 12-stepping this old boy, and, and he got on. And, and um, I said, do you want some help, Jose? You see, senorita. I said, come on. I told the people, I said, we got a guy that needs some help. Took the bus off Colfax and went right down to York Street, which was two blocks off the road. I said, I know you're going to work, but this man needs help, for God's sake. <laughs> put the flashers, I put the flashers on in front of the club. Run up, get the guys. I said, here's a 12-step call. Here comes these men, <laughs> men out of York Street, about six of them. Help this poor drunk in Chicano up the stairs. And then we went on to work with all the people, you know. I said, this is a sick man, you know. They never asked me about it or nothing. They just said, oh, shoot. You know, I never, they never called the company and said, this crazy bus driver's taking people to AA. But anyway, this long story, they 12-stepped this guy. They gave him the best stuff that they could. They 12-stepped him all day, and all of a sudden he looks up and he looks around. He said, where are we? <laughs> and they said, well, you're at 1311 York Street. And he said, well, what kind of a place is that? And he said, well, it's a, so, uh, it's a club for sober alcoholics. And he said, where are the alcoholics? And they said, well, we're alcoholic. And he said, well, by George, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm out of here. And he ran out of there. He never got on my bus again. I saw him, but he never got on my bus again. <laughs> See, I was trying to give the message to somebody that just wasn't ready. And, and be careful. When you want to troll somebody and they're in the blackout, don't be surprised. If they come too, and their little tune is a little different. I mean, he, he oh dear. But, you know, I, I would do stuff like that. And, oh, it was just goofy stuff, you know. And, and uh they they made me a supervisor, and I had fun with that. And, and people would ask me, they said, how could the bus company make you a supervisor? You're one of the worst bus drivers in the company. And I said, because they know that I'm such a baddie that I would be able to catch you. And they said, yeah, I know. That's what the problem is. Well, anyway, they ended up firing me. And, and the thing that when they fired me, I was right in the middle of the step work with Don. And so instead of going and getting a... Um, gun or AK-47 and going down and doing a postal on them, I said, hey, I have a better thing to do. I'm not, you know, they're sick and I will leave. So I, I went and started up at CSU and, and started in the equine program. And uh, then I met Bob. And we started having a long-distance relationship. And he was in Kentucky and I was in Denver. And so we started out long-distance. And, and I thought, you know, he's a nice man. He really is a nice man. And, and I told him the other night, I said, you know, I'm real fortunate that um, God found me a nice man. Because I said, you know, I'm not the nicest woman. He said, oh, yeah, you are. But he said, it's the outer crust sometime, that polar bear crust that sort of is tough on you. And so, and, and, but he, he stayed with me. Because I said, you know, when I married you, I didn't love you. My sponsor told me to marry Bob. The reason she told me to marry Bob, she said, because you're too stupid to know that he's a good man for you. She said, your little picker is broken. 
And and she said, you're going to marry him. And I said, I don't love him. She said, don't worry. And she said, don't you ever hurt him. She said, I'll come over and shoot you. I'll kill you. And she carried a thirty-eight, and I knew she would. And stuff. And she told Bob, she said, here's my number. And if she ever abuses you, you call me up and let me know. And she checks on him. And so, anyway, so... So I, I went and, and uh, I was full of the big book. Boy, I mean, I was like a walking big book by that time. And I was on fire. And I hit Louisville, Kentucky. And now there's three kinds of meetings. There's AA, BB, and Fluff and Duff. And this is my own, this is my own rating that I have done to the program. It's not out of GSO. But now AA is like what we're doing here. I'm sharing my experience, strength, and hope. BB is where you have an intellectual knowledge of the big book and the 12 steps, haven't worked a, a step in your life, haven't done nothing, but you know truth. And you know those people. Okay? And then there's the people that are fluff and duff. And they wet, pat you on the popo or in the Canada, what they say on your bum. And they pat you and they said, there, there, honey, just don't drink. Go home and take a bubble bath and it will be okay in the morning. Now, if I were to run into those kind of people, I never would have stayed around. I have to have a message that has depth and weight. I have to talk to somebody that has found the solution in the, in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that can tell me the truth. Because when I get in the middle of my stuff, I can't see the truth. I'm one of the best bullshitters I know of me. I am. And it's just terrible. I mean, I can believe stuff that just wouldn't, I mean, it just is crazy. I mean, I've run it by him, and he said, how do you think that way? He said, I don't think that way, and I said, that's because you're now on one. But anyway, so, so it moved me into Louisville, Kentucky, full of fluff and duff and therapy. I went from meeting to meeting, and I thought, my God. And so then I started telling them how it was in Denver. Well, that's not what you want to do. They didn't care how they did it in Denver, Colorado. They said, why don't you go back to Denver, Colorado? <laughs> you know, because I said, I have truth. And, and, and so then this one guy, he met my sponsor over in Hawaii, and he said, you know that Don Pritz and Camille screwing up AA in Louisville. <laughs> he didn't know about you, Gary. And so anyway, Gary was just north of us, and, and that, that helped. But and we're, we started bringing them down, b- gathering the troops. It wasn't just me. If I mean, if I was the only lone wolf that was talking about the big book, they can write you off. But if you bring in experts, and you know an expert's 50 miles away, and Gary was up in Indy, he was a little over 100 miles away, so I bring in this big expert. You know, from Indianapolis. I bring in the big expert from Colorado. And we would do these big book things. And all of a sudden it started changing. Because when people hear the truth that are dying from alcoholism, they do something. So, started changing that. And Don told me one time, he said, you know, you're a missionary. I said, I don't want to be a missionary. He said, you don't have a choice. He said, Gary's a missionary. You're a missionary. I said, well, at least I don't have to go giving watchtowers and doing all that business out there. You know, I guess this isn't so bad, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I, I started sponsoring people and and, uh, and and doing this deal. And, and But I was in a world I didn't understand. I had married a lawyer, and, and we would go to these big whoop de doos And I was standing talking to the vice president of Pepsi. And I was standing there, I mean, in a $100, no, it wasn't a $100, so it was a $1,000 get-up, you know. And I was standing there, and I was thinking, I wonder if you would have talked to me when I was wearing my leathers. <laughs> I wonder what you would think of me then. But anyway, I felt like a fraud is what I felt like. I felt phony. I didn't feel like I fit in my own skin. Still. And, and thank God I could go through the work. And I started going through the work on a regular basis. I went through it with women. I went through it with Lynn. And I went through it with Jenny. And I went through it with Joe. And, and then I went through it with different people. I went through it with the people that I sponsor. And I do it one-on-one. I bring you over to the house and you go through the 12 steps. And slowly, because what I found out is that when you come in here, you have this big ball around you. Every time somebody says no, every time you get resentment, every time something happens to you, 
and you reach out and you grab something and you put it on you to make it okay, to make it so you don't have to feel, so you don't have to think. And I was big. I mean, what the fifth step does, it starts chipping away the BS around your life that you believe that you'll take it to the grave. And I needed to get rid of that. And that's why for me, I need to do inventory on a regular basis because I have a lot of it. I have a lot of image problems. Who am I? You know, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And all this stuff. And that's why I've had to do more than one inventory. And it talks about it in the big book. It says a store that doesn't take regular inventory is going to go broke. Now, if I could do 10 and 11 like a saint and do it on a daily basis, I probably wouldn't have to do this. But I'm not perfect, and this is the way I've had to do it. And so that's why I do these regular inventories. And and so I um, got into the International Women's Conference and, and did that deal and, and, and started speaking a little bit, and, and things slowly changed. I had a lawsuit with the bus company because you really can't fire somebody on workman's comp. And they did. But anyway, we run with that for about 11 years, and they said, you've got to go back to school. Well, I hate school. and I don't want to go to school. And they said, well, you, you know, we've got to give you some settlement. So they sent me back to school to become a counselor. And you know his contempt prior to investigation. Because in 1975, when NCAA, or not NCAA, no, what is it? The National Council on Alcoholism gave all this money uh, for all these treatment centers. Every idiot that had no job, nothing to do in AA, become an alcoholic counselor. And I didn't want to become one of those. You know, because I just knew, because I saw them and they got drunk, one right after the other, because they started believing it. And I didn't want to become a counselor. Well, anyway, that's what they sent me to school for. And I thought, boy, if this isn't ironic, you know. And so so I went to school, and, and I went to school, and I went to school, and, and I kept going to school until now I'm the most educated idiot I know. <laughs> but the thing about it is is that for it was my journey. And, and for whatever reason, you know, I had to do, I had to have that challenge. And I'm so glad that I did challenge myself that way. Because one of the reasons that I went to school is because I want to be self-supporting through my own contribution. I want to be able to take care of myself in my old age. And, and with a physical body that I have, it's, mine's getting a little fuzzy too now. But anyway, with a physical body, I wanted to be able to take care of myself. And now I have a position where I can take care of myself. And and uh, it darn near killed me. I mean, I stressed myself out to the max. And one of the things, I had dinner with one of my, my sponsees the other night, and they told me, they said, you know, one of the biggest inspirations that you could ever give us is that you could show that you could uh, be depressed, that you could have problems, that um, life wasn't all happy, lucky, and free when you were 25 years sober. But they said, what we watched you do is that we watched you work the steps and we watched you go to the source and we watched you struggle and they said thank god you were not perfect and thank god that you showed us that you know just because you've been sober for a long time life goes on and you have problems and you don't have to drink you don't have to go crazy i was uh i, I tried some of those little funny pills you know they got them if you feel bad take a prozac and all that stuff that stuff makes me suicidal and i can't take it and, and I was really pissed off at that because I would look at these other people and they were taking happy pills and they were happy. And I said, why can't I? I so I, And I got to the point on this one deal and I called up Bob and I said, Bob, I'm dying. This is Bob O. And I said, we need to do something. He said, well, let's go through the work. And I went through the work and I did it this time on my belief systems and on my values. And that was another layer that I had to get rid of because I had some belief systems about Camille that just didn't work. I had a belief system that I was stupid. Didn't matter that I was in a doctorate program. I had a belief system that I was a fraud. I had a belief system that if you really knew who I was on the inside, you wouldn't like me. That's a 25 years sober, and I'm telling you, that's a strange place to be. And I got rid of some of those. He said, what's the evidence of it? What's the evidence? And, and, and really broke down some of that old nonsense. And I was able to get rid of it. 
and then I was able to go through through the rest of the program. And I haven't tried any of those. I can't even take any any kind of medication. It's just sad. If I, you know, I tried to take some of this nonny juice the other day, and that's supposed to, it's vitamins. It's supposed to make you feel good. Made me tired and hungry. I said, why does I, everybody can take all this stuff and I can't? I, and they said, you're not supposed to. Your system was screwed up before you were born, so don't worry about it. And and so I um, I uh, was taking these women. I had sickest women in in Louisville in 19 or 2003, and I I had nothing to do, so I started taking women through the big book, and I found the sickest ones in Louisville. And it's always good to get a real sick one because then they're desperate. If they're not sick, they won't listen. They'll go off and do whatever they want to do. And and so we were doing that. And then a friend of mine down at Vanderbilt, she said, I found you a job. And I said, I, I didn't want really look. And she said, well, this is where you need to go. I said, where? She said, Canada. I said, I don't want to go to Canada. So anyway, she said, well, look at it. So I looked at it. I looked at I, I talked to Bob. We consulted about it, you know. And, and I said, it's just for a year. I just am going up there for a year. And then I can get my credentials and come back down. So we prayed about it. It looked right, like the right thing to do. My life is none of my business. I truly believe that. And so God moved me to Canada. And I was supposed to be up there. I worked for probation and parole department up there. Worked with a lot of drunks. Worked with a lot of people that were angry, angry at Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason that they were angry is because they were not hearing the message that was clear. They weren't hearing a message of recovery. They were hearing a lot of fluff and duff in meetings. And for an ex-con, they don't need fluff and duff. They need to know the hard truth right out of the big book, straight to it. And then they can see. And it was real interesting. I worked with other people that would come in and see me for psychological problems. I said, when did you read your big book last? And they said, well, about 16 years ago. And I said, well, get it off the shelf and we're going to start. I said, in fact, get a new one. You know, a lot of people go through and they'll listen to Joe and Charlie tapes, think that they have the experience, and then they got all their big book all messed up. And, and they have had no, they've had Joe and Charlie's experience. I said, we're going to go through it one-on-one. And so I started doing that deal. I lived in Chatham for a while. Uh, worked for the Olympic team um, in equestrian uh, sports, and that was a, a fun deal. Worked for the Racing Commission of Ontario. I've had some wonderful, wonderful adventures. And, and uh, I found out that um, I'm okay. I needed to go to Canada to grow up. Because living with an Al-Anon, Al-Anons are wonderful, and I love my husband to death. But he did so much for me, and pretty soon I wasn't doing a darn thing. I wasn't cooking, I wasn't cleaning, I was doing nothing. You know, it's lucky I even made love to him every now and then. You know, I mean, it was just, well, you got to help out the guys. But anyway, so so anyway, I uh, went to Canada, and uh, I'm still up there, by the way. It's been three years. And I don't know, we have had a relationship that has grown. We're friends. I talk to him two or three times a day. Thank Lord I have a good uh, plan. I mean, on my cell phone, I have a North American plan. And uh, so we're good friends, and hopefully um, in a month or two I'll know whether I'm supposed to stay up there. But I do a lot of work with people that come in to me thinking that they got some real psychological problems. And I said, you may. You may have some psychological problems, but let's go through the big book first. And... and um, we're, we're helping some people as a missionary in St. Catharines. We're, we're changing. Because they said, where did you get this program? And I said, what do you mean? This is AA. No, where did you get this stuff, this step stuff? And I said, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. They said, we've never heard it. We've never heard it. My home group, the traditions group, is a good group. Has a lot of big book. Mildred's up there. She's gone through the work. There's a lot of people that are big book. I wouldn't go to a group. I wouldn't be a member of a group if it wasn't solution-focused. I can't go. I'm sorry. I I do not have the patience and tolerance and love to sit in a meeting of fluff and duff. I just can't do it at my age. And and I I need solutions. And so that's why I'm grateful for that. When we had our little party up there in in, uh, Toronto this last summer, um, we had a great time. We showed the Americans how to sing the Canadian song, 
and and we had an ice cream social, and we just did all sorts of things. We're going to have a little conference up here next weekend. So if you're in uh, Toronto, I know there's one gentleman that's coming up to Toronto. He's found a Canuck to fall in love with, I guess, from my home group. <laughs> At least that's what I understand. It may be something else. But um, <laughs> the thing about it is carry the true message. Okay, the true message of Alcoholics Anonymous has depth and weight. You have no message if you haven't worked the 12 steps. I have worked the 12 steps a number of times. I made some amends. I'm going to tell you about one amend, and then I'm going to sit down. I made an amend to my mother. And, and my mother, when I went to talk to her, I said, I want to tell you, I want to make amends. And she said, listen, she said, you weren't around me when you were drinking, and I don't want to know about your life. And I said, okay. She said, all I want from you is to be happy. So, I'm happy. (laughs) No, I mean, when I call her up, I'm happy. She loves Canadian chocolate. She said they don't have wax in Canadian chocolate. I don't know whether that's true. I send her boxes of candy, you know, and stuff. And we're going out there. Bob's speaking in Oregon. We're going out there, and and I send her Canadian books. And and, uh, we're going to go out there, and, and when I'm out there, I'm happy, you know. And and she's just happy. I mean, when she knows that I'm happy, she's good, Alan. On she's just happy as can be. You know? <laughs> if I have problems today, and I still do, I work the steps. I had to get clear on this test. I called Bob up here about a couple months ago, and I said I'm in trouble, and I need to go through the work. And I I did another inventory, and I got clear. I got free. I can't stand resentments. I can't stand fear. I can't stand the pain. That new people can't. New people can walk around with a hole in their gut for about a year or so, and I can't do that. I don't know how y'all do it, but I I got to get rid of it and stuff. And then we are going through. Um, you know, he I did six and seven, and and he said, uh, well, what about your men's list? And I said, well, I don't have any men's to make. And he said, oh, okay. Well, when I got to Louisville, I, I've been making men's some of these people that I was sponsoring and I couldn't sponsor them because I got too busy and and some of the stuff and and so the amends come and I knew that it frees you and that's what I have today I have peace I have serenity I still sponsor some of these people when Bob got sick in Louisville and I couldn't be there I told my sponsor I said thank God I have sponsees because they were there they called them up they took them food they did a lot of things. And it's a it's a nice feeling when you're a thousand miles away. I still have a sponsor. I have a sponsor emeritus. I work the steps with uh, various people. And uh, I work steps with people that are clear. I work steps with people that have a message. And I hope for all of you is that you really keep doing this deal because it really does work. A friend of mine at the Cleveland Clinic, who is the head psychiatrist, said if, if people would work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, it would cut his mental health business down at the Cleveland Clinic by two-thirds. He said there's a third of the population that really are crazy, and they're never going to work steps. Okay? But he said the other people could apply. So I just hope for you that you all have the, the um, um, desire, the desperation that it takes sometimes to get gut level honest so you can come to probably the most biggest adventure and party in your life. And with that, I think I'm going to shut up so my husband can tell you the rest of the story. Thank you.